This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, and these are the words that he pens. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline, a couple of sub-points as we go. would encourage you to take notes. You'll listen better if you do. Point number one is this, and it's brief. Sin affects our ability to hear and understand spiritual truth. Right? Hear and understand there in the blank. Sin affects our ability to hear and understand spiritual truth. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Now, as Jesus had confronted the scribes and the Pharisees back in verses 1 through 13, you can imagine the ears of the surrounding crowd would have perked up and listened in. But Jesus has said all he's going to say to the scribes and the Pharisees now. Here in verse 14 marks a shift, at least for the time being, where Jesus is not speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees anymore. Jesus is now speaking to the, the crowd. And then Jesus is going to stop speaking to the crowd here in just a few minutes, and Jesus is going to speak to his disciples for the rest of the text. But here at least we can assume that Jesus is speaking primarily to the crowd. He calls them to himself so that he can teach them an important lesson. He addresses them saying, hear me, all of you, and understand. Now, it's interesting to note here that Jesus employs language that is reflective of the way the Old Testament prophets would have addressed the people when they had a revelatory word from Yahweh. As you look back through the Old Testament, you look at Elijah, uh, and you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, and all these Old Testament prophets, when they were speaking on behalf of the Lord, they would say, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus employs that same language structure right here in verse 14. It indicates that what Jesus is about to say is of revelatory significance and therefore it demands diligent reflection. The problem is that sin is an insidious disease. 
Sin is a pervasive, insidious disease. It pervades every human faculty and it affects every fiber of our being. It ruins the heart, the will, the conscience, the mind, the memory, and the understanding. The person who is quick and clever in worldly things will oftentimes fail to understand the simplest of spiritual truths. To the lost, spiritual truth sounds antithetical to reality and therefore foolishly unreasonable. But the problem isn't contained in the message. The problem is contained in the hearer, right? The problem isn't the truth that the Bible communicates. The problem is with us. The problem is with our ability to hear and to understand, to comprehend, to live out God's word. That's where the problem is contained. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Just three verses later, Paul said the the world does not know God through its wisdom. It hears, the world hears, But darkened and deluded as the mind is because of sin, it does not and cannot understand. Think about yourself before you came to Christ. Maybe you sat in church for years. And all you watched was a talking bobblehead behind a pulpit. But what you heard made little sense to you. It's because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And apart from the Holy Spirit illuminating God's word, if sin is running its course, then we are challenged to hear and to understand spiritual truth. Jesus is pointing that out here when he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. We call this inability to understand spiritual truth uh, the the noetic effect of the fall. N-O-E. T-I-C, noetic effect of the fall. Noetic just has to do with the mind or the intellect. Just means that as a result of the fall, as a result of the Genesis 3 fall, our minds cannot process, comprehend, and do something, do what it was intended to do with spiritual truth. Sin affects our ability to hear and to understand spiritual truth. And friends, let me tell you this. Even in believers, sin cherished for a short period of time will keep you from hearing and understanding spiritual truth. Sin cherished will keep you from hearing and understanding spiritual truth. Number two, Jesus turns our distorted theology inside out. This is is kind of the the main thrust of the text here this morning. Jesus, he's now speaking to the crowds. He's going to transition here in just a moment to speaking specifically to the disciples. But what Jesus is doing is he's untying years and years and years of of theological knots that that the Jewish religious system has, has tied. And so what Jesus needs to do here before he can uh, preach the gospel is he's got to deal with their distorted theology. Look at verses 15 through 19 uh, there in your Bible for a second. Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, 
Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, five times in these ten verses uh, here in front of us this morning, we see the word defile. See that word repeated over and over. It means dirty or impure or unclean or corrupt or unacceptable. Purity is a huge, huge issue in the Bible. It's a huge issue because it has to do with how we relate to God. Remember, the thing that Jesus is taking these Jews to task over is that they thought that they were defiled by all kinds of external issues They thought they were made unclean or impure or corrupt or dirty by all these external issues. And Jesus is pointing them back to the source of defilement, to the source of impurity, to the source of uncleanliness, the heart. Purity has to do with how we relate to God. God is pure. He's holy. As a matter of fact, the prophet Habakkuk, speaking about God, says, Your eyes, God, are too pure to even look on evil. And so for the remainder of our text to this morning, Jesus is going to seek to correct the distorted theology that impurity comes from the outside. Little sub-point there, A, write this down again if you're taking notes. The problem isn't on the outside. The problem isn't on the outside. Look again at verse 15. Jesus says, There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see, to the Jews, eating forbidden or defiled foods, which the list was very long. Go, go back and check out Leviticus chapter 11 uh, this week if, if you want some, some good reading here. Uh, really, read the book of Leviticus if you want to know about all the ceremonial and dietary and cleanliness regulations and, and laws that were a part of the Levitical law. Not, not just the tradition of the elders here, but were part of the Levitical law. And you ask yourself, well, why did all these exist? Well, that's, that's a bit outside the scope of the message this morning, but, but let me just give you a couple of brief thoughts here. They, they existed, one, because God wanted his people, Israel, to be set apart, to be clean, to be unlike, to be different from the surrounding nations. Uh, but secondly, uh, there, there, there were all kinds of ways in, in, in the day that you could become ill, Uh, And so Jesus wanted to protect his people, too. So all kinds of reasons why those dietary uh, laws existed there. Uh, But there's some good reading in Leviticus chapter 11 and the following. But to the Jews, eating a forbidden or defiled food contaminated a person, and it necessitated a cleansing bath according to the Old Testament law. However, Jesus reversed their thinking. Jesus declared that it wasn't outside impurities that contaminate the inside, but rather inside impurities that contaminate the outside. You might remember that I mentioned last week that Jewish religious tradition taught that flat surfaces, think about a flat surface here, flat surfaces were typically clean while hollow spaces or vessels or containers, interior spaces 
were oftentimes susceptible to defilement, and therefore they needed to be cleansed. But here in verse 15, Jesus brilliantly applies the teaching of receptacle or container defilement to people. In other words, he's saying if the inside of a receptacle or the inside of a container, a non-flat surface, if it is contaminated, how much more is the inside of a person? Can you see that? In, in a brilliant way here, Jesus is applying this whole teaching of defilement to the inner man. It's interesting, Matthew's parallel accounts of the story in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew adds here, Then the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you saying this? Yeah. Yes, they were offended. Of course they were offended. Jesus had just negated their entire system of morality. Their, their entire system of trying to please God with merely externals. The same is true of individuals today. Tell a man, tell a woman that he or she is not intrinsically good and that their attempts to please a holy God by means of their own righteousness, by their own way, by their own thinking, by their own me methods. Try telling a person that. You know what it's like? It's like poking a hornet's nest. But Jesus isn't concerned with garnering a good reputation from those who would reject truth. And what Jesus announces here in verse 15, it's not a new teaching. This has been true throughout the ages. In every period of history, true holiness has always been a matter of the heart. True righteousness has always been a matter of the heart. A right relationship with God comes by faith. It comes by a surrendered, humble, contrite, laid low heart. Moses made it clear that God wants love and obedience to come from the heart, not, not merely outward observance to rules and regulations. And Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's not jumping through hoops. It's love God with all your being. Just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 10, he repeated it in some different language. Moses said, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? That has always been God's method of being approached. You see, the ancient ritual regulations and dietary guidelines outlined in the, in the Levitical law, they simply served as a shadow of the more profound interior purification that Jesus was going to bring to the heart of a man and a woman. For those of us that are on point this morning, you might be wondering why verse 16 doesn't appear in your Bible. Anybody catch it? Now you know. No verse 16 there, probably in most of your translations. Most manuscripts uh, don't add a verse 16 there. Uh, you probably will see a little, uh, a little asterisk there, and you'll see it uh, sub-noted or footnoted there in your Bible. Verse 16 would say, if anyone has ears, let him hear. 
the reason it doesn't exist there is because the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts don't contain this statement. So most of our modern translations leave out verse 16 uh, and footnote it instead. But having said that, even if verse 16 were there in your Bible, uh, its inclusion would not, would not change or alter the flow of the text. It would not change or alter the theology of the text. As a matter of fact, it echoes what Jesus has already said in verse 14 when he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Uh, but just in case you were curious why verse 16 doesn't appear in your Bible, there's, there's a few words on that there. Look at verse 17 here. Mark writes, And when he'd entered the house, presumably Peter's house, and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, pause here. Jesus is transitioning here in the text. He's spoken to the people already, the crowd. He's done speaking with the scribes and Pharisees. He said a few words to the crowds. What Jesus is going to do now for the rest of the text is he's going to speak to his disciples. Okay? And his disciples come to him and they ask him about the parable. Now, what is a parable? What is a parable? A parable is simply a story or an illustration that's pregnant with meaning that is not immediately apparent. Not immediately apparent. This pattern of public parable and then private interpretation to his disciples was very characteristic of Jesus' teaching ministry. I mean, Jesus would have his disciples with him as he was teaching and preaching. He would be preaching in parables. His disciples wouldn't understand. And then after Jesus left the crowd and, and went somewhere more solitary with his disciples, he would interpret the parable. He would explain the parable. He would help his disciples understand the meaning of the parable. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. See, the disciples struggled to understand the meaning of Jesus' teaching. Jesus lovingly chides them in verse 18. Look, he asks, are, are you also without understanding? This is a mild rebuke here. Are you also without understanding? Do you, do you still not get it? You see, despite their privileged relationship with Jesus, the disciples aren't fundamentally different from the crowd. They, too, have been deeply influenced by the legalistic rules and regulations taught by the religious leaders. The disciples had been brought up under these exact same strict Jewish dietary codes and laws and rules and regulations that categorized foods as either being clean or unclean. As a matter of fact, Peter, long after Peter heard Jesus' teaching here in Mark chapter 7. Way later, in Acts chapter 10, he still struggled with the idea that impurity was a matter of the heart and not external contaminants. Remember Acts chapter 10. Don't turn there. Probably a familiar text to you. And when he came hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were still preparing it, he fell into a trance, Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. You know, for illustration purposes here, the disciples were kind of like the dog 
that stares at the pointed finger of its master rather than the object to which the finger points. I tried this this week in, in our kitchen with our little terrier. You know, and, and, and you point to something, and she's so fixated on the finger. She's not, you, know, you, you can't get her attention out over here somewhere so fixated on the finger that they don't see the object to which the finger points. And so Jesus further explains the parable in verses 18 and 19 saying this, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but into his stomach and is expelled? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's making crystal clear the fact that food that enters into a person cannot defile him or her. That is, make him or her unclean because it doesn't enter into the heart. No, no food, even if it were contaminated, even if it were defiled, even if it were unclean, can make a person unclean because when it enters into the body, it does not enter into the heart, but rather into the stomach and then is expelled. It simply comes in and passes through. Sin, on the other hand, originates in the heart. That's where it resides. It produces impurity and even death. When Jesus speaks about the heart, he's referring not to the location of our feelings, but rather to the seat of the human will. You see, the heart, as it's spoken of in Scripture, is the, the grand central station, the nucleus, the foci, the, the hub of man's interlife, inner life, and, and therefore the, the source of human motivations and affections and actions and thoughts. It's the will of a man, the will of a woman. It's who you are. Your heart is who you are. That's why the writer of Proverbs tells us to guard your heart, right? Guard your heart above all things, because out of it flow the springs of life. Jesus is putting his finger on the core of man. It's our hearts that are defiled. It's our hearts that are dirty. It's our hearts that are unclean. It's our hearts that are impure. It's our hearts that are corrupt. It's our hearts that are unacceptable. The problem isn't on the outside. Friends, the enemy is within Write that down. B, the enemy is within. Look at verse 20. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. Jesus connects the true source of defilement or impurity, not to rules and regulations concerning clean and unclean foods, but rather to an unclean heart. Observing Levitical dietary laws could never remove the pollution that resides in the human heart. Not because the commandments were flawed, but because we are flawed and we can't keep them perfectly. Jesus asserts that the origin of impurity is inside, not outside. All the hardware to produce impurity is already resident in your heart and my heart from birth. You know, as a pastor, I, I get the privilege of being in hospital rooms with new parents often, and I get to hold those precious little image bearers. Beautiful, 
You stare into those little eyes. That little heart is beating. Those little lungs are working. Those little kidneys are functioning. I mean, here's an image bearer, a human being made in God's image. But when I hold that little one, what I know is that all the hardware to accomplish every sin under the sun is already there. It's already resident. We're born that way. We're born that way. Everything we need is already there. Again, parents know this well. We don't have to teach our children to lie, to blame, to be selfish, to be disobedient, to be deceitful, to have a deserving mentality, to be arrogant, to be angry, to argue, to complain, to worship things rather than God, to be jealous, to be unkind, to be unthankful. We're born with all that. None of that has to be taught. Why? Because the enemy's within. The problem is within. We're not defiled by what comes in. We're already defiled because of what is within. Every expression of sin can be traced back to a heart that has been dominated by the effects of the fall. J.C. Ryle wrote these penetrating words. He said, Our original sinfulness and our natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. In other words, we, we don't even think about this very often. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples or bad company or peculiar temptations or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man and every woman carries within them the fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us. And we need no devil to tempt us in order to run headlong into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under the sun. Friends, the enemy is within. Number three, write this down if you're taking notes. Our hearts, they are more wicked than we ever dared to believe. Our hearts are more wicked than we ever dared to believe. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jeremiah reminds us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can, who can understand it? It's desperately sick. The list of sins here in verses 21 through 23 show just how sick, just how desperately wicked our hearts really are. Like a sewer that backs up and overflows its foul contents, so our hearts overflow their foul contents. That's what Luke 6.45 says, right? Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, out of an overflow of the heart, we act. And we need to understand here that Jesus isn't just talking about that notorious sinner in verses 21 through 23, that, that wicked, vile person that we all know, right? 
No, Jesus is taking aim at our hearts here in the text. The seeds of every sin listed in verses 21 through 23 are already lurking in your heart and in mine. All of us by nature have the very heart that Jesus describes right here in verses 21 through 23. Those seeds of evil, they may lie dormant. They may lie quiet for a while, kept at bay by a fear of consequences or kept at bay because of a fear of the opinion of others or the dread of discovery or the desire to be thought of as as uh, respectable. But be not mistaken that every one of these evils exists in our hearts, yours and mine. And if you think it's not so, if you're sitting there this morning saying, yeah, not me, then you are just proof of my first point. Sin. Sin affects our ability to hear and understand spiritual truth. As we look at verses 21 through 23, there's a definite pattern in the Greek here. The first six terms, and we're going to look at at this list here in just a second, but the first six terms in the list here are in the plural. uh, And that denotes that they are evil acts. While the last six terms occur in the singular, they are evil attitudes. Evil acts first, evil attitudes second. And it's interesting to note that Mark begins the list of sin here in the human heart with evil thoughts. Why do you suppose that Mark begins the list here, Jesus really begins the list here, with evil thoughts? Well, the reason is because evil thoughts are the parent of evil deeds. Evil thoughts are the parent of evil deeds. In other words, sin is always entertained as a possibility before it's ever acted on as a reality. Did you catch that? Sin is always considered as a possibility, entertained as a possibility before it's ever acted on as a reality. In biblical counseling, and you've heard me say this many times, uh, we say it like this. You do what you do. Why? Because you think what you think. You do what you do because you think what you think. All sin is first conceived in the mind and then it's acted on. And so let's look briefly at this list of sins here that Jesus gives us that are expressions of our hearts as well. Look at the first six here. Sexual immorality. These are sinful acts. Sexual immorality. This is the word pornea here. It's a broad term uh, that encompasses all sexual sin. It's, It's where we get our word pornography. Sexual immorality. The seeds of sexual immorality are resident in your heart and mine. Do you know what those seeds need to grow? Water and opportunity. Don't give it either. Don't give it either. Know that the seeds of sexual immorality are already resident in your heart. Don't find yourself in a position where you can water them or there's opportunity for them to grow. Theft. This is taking what rightfully belongs to another. And you may say, well, I'm, I'm not a thief. Well, Even if you had never taken something that belonged to someone else, you take glory that belongs to God every day without exception. 
and so do I. So do I. We're all thieves. We're all thieves by nature. Murder. Say, well, I haven't killed anyone. Well, we need to remember Matthew 5, 21 and 22 here. If we've looked at our brother or sister with evil in our heart, we have already murdered them. Adultery. Say, well, I haven't committed physical adultery. Again, we need to remember Matthew 5, 27 through 28. If a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. And we said that lust, back when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, lust is not confined to the male gender. Just because Jesus says, if a man here does not mean that a woman cannot be guilty here. Coveting. This is the lustful appetite for what belongs to others. It's actually a compound word in the Greek. It literally means to be eager for more. To be eager for more. It's the heart of a man or the heart of a woman who sees happiness in things rather than in God. And we're all guilty of that. We find happiness in things rather than in God. And then wickedness. Wickedness rounds out the list of sinful acts here. It's the Greek word paneria. It occurs in the plural in the original language. It literally means wickednesses. Wickednesses. Describes the person who is not content in his own sin or not content in her own sin, but encourages others to sin as well. Sin loves company, right? Sin loves company. Interestingly enough, the word paneros, evil one, is one of the titles given to Satan. Paneria is the word here, the Greek word for wickedness, paneros. Just a change there is the evil one. And it's one of the names, the titles given to Satan. Now let's look at the next six here. These are sinful attitudes. Sinful attitudes. Leading the list here, Jesus says deceit. This is literally craftiness or a cunning spirit, duplicitousness. Has the idea of baiting others. Deceitfulness, baiting others. Jesus numbers sensuality among the attitudes here. This word refers to open and unashamed sin. It's the unbridled, unrestrained attitude that says, I will do what I please, and I don't care who knows about it or what they think about it. Sensuality. Envy. The original word here literally means evil eye. Evil eye. It was a Jewish expression for stinginess. Envy jealously looks at the blessings of another and desires them for itself. It burns at the thoughts of others prospering. Envy. Slander. Slander is the Greek word blasphema here. It refers to all blaspheming the name and the majesty of God, but it also refers to speaking ill of others. To blaspheme or to slander, to backbite. Jesus numbers pride here among the attitudes. This is selfish arrogance. This is the person who has contempt for everyone but himself. Literally, literally means to show yourself above others. 
to show yourself above others. It can be overt or it can be covert. Oftentimes the prideful person, if it's not even noticed, the prideful person is always in the background comparing themselves to another. Sizing themselves up with others. And then lastly, foolishness. Foolishness. This means thoughtless, senseless, and reckless. Not because of a lack of knowledge, but, but because of sinful desire. Foolishness is descriptive of the person who is morally and spiritually insensitive. Has a hard time feeling anymore. The list before us here ought to humble us to the core. Because the list in front of us is a mirror. Every single one of us are unclean. Every single one of us are ruined. And we stand before a holy God. He sees in us with exacting precision the countless evils which the world may never see. We can look great on the outside. The world may never see. But God does. Every sinful motive we delusionally think remains cloaked in the darkness of secrecy he sees with full and unerring light. This list is an indictment, but this list is also a summons to the cross. As you look at this list here, there is implicit in this list a summons to the cross of Jesus Christ, where there is forgiveness full and free, where there is pardon from our, our, our vilest of sins. How thankful we ought to be for the gospel when we consider such a heinous list of sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ contains complete provision for the wickedness that resides in our hearts. We're utterly defiled, not because of that which is on the outside, but because of the very heart that resides on the inside. And so thanks be to God that he would turn his gracious, merciful eye to such a wretched sinner as I am. Thanks be to God that he would deliver me from this body of death by subjecting his son to the death penalty for me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The Pharisees thought that they had hearts of gold. They thought that their rigorous adherence to their self-made standards made them clean and acceptable to God. And friends, I'll tell you that this is the ever-constant whisper of Satan even here this morning. Don't worry. God will accept you just as you are. Just do your best. Just try harder. Just clean yourself up. But Jesus' words in verses 21 through 23 serve as a sweeping indictment to the depravity and the darkness that resides in our hearts apart from his redeeming grace. You see, apart from Christ, this list in front of us here doesn't just describe what you do. Friends, it describes who we are describes who we are. And so let me conclude this morning by saying just a few words about what we should do with these evil hearts of ours. What should we do with these evil hearts? Well, the world says what we need is education, culture, social reform. I mean, these are the types of cures that the world comes up with for the ills of man. The problem is that this cure is built upon a, a, a faulty anthropology, what is anthropology? Well, it's just the study of man. It's what we know to be true about man. 
These types of cures, education, culture, or social reform, they're built upon a, a, a faulty anthropology because they're built upon an anthropology that says wickedness is on the outside, which is what Jesus has been laboring now for 10 verses to tell us is not true. Remember, the problem isn't on the outside. The enemy is within. There's no power in the world that can make a bad heart good. There's only one hope for our wickedly sick hearts, and that's the hope, that's the, that's the hope of the transforming grace of Christ. That's the hope of a crucified, resurrected Redeemer Savior, Jesus Christ. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residency in our hearts that we have any real hope, any, any real lasting true hope of heart change. In other words, regeneration is the only answer to the ills of verses 21 through 23. It's only after a person receives a regenerated heart, a new heart, after a person becomes a new creation, a person is born again, that he or she can begin to think and act in God-honoring ways. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on and he says, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed in the Greek, it's where we get our English word metamorphosis, and it literally means to be changed from the inside out. You see, rules of behavior and rules of conduct, they may have their place, but the problem is when those rules and regulations become a substitute for true holiness. When we seek those rules and those regulations as a means of righteousness. It's possible to be very religious and to be very lost at the same time. Churches are filled this very moment with very religious people who are very lost because they've, they've neglected the heart. They can read the script, they can play the part, they can jump through the hoops, but they've neglected the inner man. Paul in 2 Timothy writes about those who have the appearance of godliness but yet deny its power. And so in conclusion this morning, I ask, what about you? Have you come to, to Christ in humble faith and repentance? Have you been given a new heart? Or are you like the Pharisees? Are you too busy trying to put lipstick on a pig, trying to wash the outside of the tomb and neglecting the dead man that exists inside? And Jesus reminds us in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Friends, do you have that life? Do you know Jesus Christ savingly by faith and repentance? If not, our encouragement to you this morning is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word. Lord, thank you for the truth that it's here. Lord, these are challenging words. These are penetrating words. These are reflective words. Your word searches us. It knows us. It exposes us. Lord, we are the person that we see here specifically in verses 23, or 21 through 23. The seeds of every one of these sins lie resident in each of our hearts and all they need to grow are time and opportunity. 
Lord, I pray that we would not water them. Lord, I pray that we would crucify the flesh and its evil desires, that we would put off the old man and put on the new man, which is created after the image of its maker. Lord, I pray that we would be growing in holiness and in righteousness, that we'd be growing in a life that's pleasing and honoring to you, that your son may receive all the glory and all the praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.